Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer and try Peloton risk-free with Peloton Rentals at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. My name is Seamus Perry and I teach uh, English at the University of Oxford. And I'm here today to talk to Mark Ford, who's Professor of English at University College London. We are both contributors, London Review Books, me merely prose, Mark both prose and poetry. And we are here to talk about the poetry in the life of Philip Larkin. This has been prompted by a number of things. One was the relatively recent uh, publication of a big uh, defensive biography of Larkin by uh, James Booth, who's a great scholar of Larkin at the University of Hull. Also, the arrival of Larkin in Westminster Abbey, posthumously. And finally, 2017 is uh, Hull's turn to be the uh, city of culture in which Larkin is bound to loom very large. So we thought, for those reasons uh, alone, it would be a good idea to um, talk about Larkin and try and reassess his importance and why he still matters as a poet today. Larkin features very largely in the archives of the London Review of Books. Many great pieces about him have appeared in the pages of the LRB by Barbara Everett and John Bailey and Alan Bennett and Jenny Diskey and other people. And we may be referring to some of those as we continue our conversation. But uh, perhaps uh, a good place to start would be uh, where Larkin started, and it's perhaps not where we might think he started, which is to say, although he always wrote poems, his earliest ambitions as a literary figure were to write novels. And I wonder, Mark, if uh, you might say something about that. Where do we place these early novels that, that Larkin wrote? What are they like? I think they're wonderful. Two novels he wrote in his very early 20s. Um, Jill was published when he was only 21, I think. And the book published as A Girl in Winter, but which he thought of as The Kingdom of Winter in 1947, just after the war. And they are poetic novels in some ways, in that there's a limited cast of characters and the themes of them are close to the themes explored in his poetry, uh, fantasy, um, the erotic life, one's um, dreams of being an ideal self and the ways in which reality cuts you down to size, and the ways in which we come to accommodate uh, ourselves to reality. And Larkin did like the idea of being a novelist. Um, in a late poem, he, he fantasises about the life of what he calls the shit in the shuttered chateau, uh, uh, writing 500 words a day and parsing out the rest of the afternoon between booze and birds. This is a kind of fantasy life which he felt Kingsley Amis, his friend uh, whom he met at Oxford, had succeeded <laughs> in uh, achieving and there is a kind of light motif throughout Larkin's life of Amos being a sort of successful doppelganger that Amos was Jack the lad who did make all his money from his books and had lots and lots of girls and Larkin was old misery guts in Hull who didn't have that much money and didn't get the girls um, though that in fact posthumously turned out not to be quite the case he one time had four girls on the go at once but still he wasn't a Lothario of the kind that Kingsley Amos was. So this vision of a life as a as a novelist ground to a halt with his third novel, which he titled A New World Symphony, and it he just couldn't finish it. And he realised that he would never be able to continue as a novelist, uh, and poetry chose him. He had written lots and lots of poems by that point, 
but that he just couldn't keep going as, as a novelist. And he, he said it was because he wasn't interested enough in other people. The novels are very different from Amos's novels, aren't they? I mean, Amos's novels are in a kind of Fielding-esque sort of tradition of knockabout humour, really. Lucky Jim especially, I suppose. And Larkin's novels he describes as oversized poems, doesn't he? So they're, they're already, um, as you say, they're already rather poetical enterprises in the first place. And I wonder if there's something about that very kind of poetic sort of purity that made it difficult to sustain as a, as a novelistic kind of project. Yes, he thought of the novel as a long prose poem. Um, and there was an article, I think, in Scrutiny, which had talked exactly about that concept of the post-war novel as being like a prose poem. And he liked that idea. But I think, going back to Amos, it has it almost been advanced that Larkin is almost a co-author of Lucky Jim. Yes. That Lucky Jim was so based on Larkin's own sense of humour and Jim Dixon took his his name from Dixon Drive, where Larkin was living, and... Margaret Beale is based on his girlfriend, Monica Jones, uh, in a rather brutal way. So I think that Kingsley Amos and, and Larkin shared a kind of humour which emerges in Lucky Jim and, and catapulted Amos to fame, not so Larkin. And, and he did come to resent that in later life. Now, none of that Larkin-esque humour gets into the early poems, does it? The first volume is called The North Ship, which is heavily influenced by Yeats with a little bit of Auden, a little bit of Dylan Thomas. How would you characterise that as a volume? Yes, Yeats was the uh, primary influence. There's a kind of distillation of Yeats. If you read Larkin's early work, it's odd that he could write Auden by the Yard, and there's, there's, there's yards and yards of sub esque work. But Yeats actually was good in, in distilling his work and making it more kind of crystalline and more imagistic and more symbolist and more jewelled, you could say. And, and, and North... Northship, in its way, is successful. Um, it's uh, quite a distance from the Larkin that became incredibly popular in the 50s and 60s. But an understanding of his career does, I think, have to begin with the Northship. But these are poems, if you saw them without an author's name attached to them, you would struggle to think of them as the work of Philip Larkin, probably. They, they come out of the 40s as well, when there were poets called the New Apocalyptics, and, and they present a kind of an emptied out landscape. There aren't many people in them. And this is what it, I think if you put them against the novels, it's, it's a fascinating to see that the people get into the novels and the kind of lyricism gets into the poetry. And Larkin's great breakthrough was to find a way of bringing together the kind of mundane and the ordinary with this symbolist drive for some kind of intensity of experience, but to, to represent it in relation to the quotidian, the everyday, rather than in relation to the purely lyrical. Yeah. So the, the person who helps him, the author who helps him make that uh, reconciliation of those different elements in his imagination, you would say is Hardy. Yes. I mean, he, he, he used to joke about how, how the influence of Yeats was pervasive as garlic. And uh, he was always quoting Yeats and getting people rather annoyed <laughs> by quoting Yeats so much. Uh, and then he was, uh, when he was uh, working in Wellington as a librarian, his first job, he, he worked all his life as a librarian. He used to wake up early and he had a copy of Hardy's poems, the, the selection that Hardy made, his last selection of his poems. Um, and it had been taken, this is an interesting, interesting sort of uh, detail, uh, belonged to a local girls' school. I, uh, Larkin tells us that somehow to suggest, <clears throat> I think, a connection between the erotic and Hardy. And I think the erotic is also crucial to uh, Larkin's work as it is to Hardy's. Uh, and he read these poems and suddenly thought, I don't have to jack myself up to this idea of poetry which Yeats's works 
embody that I can somehow write about my ordinary life in the way that Hardy does and that there's not a scrap of Hardy's sort of 900 pages of poetry that it doesn't have something of interest in it and he said that every Hardy poem has a spinal cord of thought Uh, and I think that is something which is also crucial to the way Larkin's poetry develops that each of them has a kind of a a donne has a, a a line of thought which is then developed. He says of Hardy, doesn't he, that he's not a transcendental writer. He's not like Eliot or Yeats. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, go for transcendence. His subjects are time and the passing of time, love and the fading of love. Do you think those are, those are the lessons that Larkin principally learnt? Yes, and that he touches the reader's heart by showing his own. Yeah. Uh, that um, there's something a bit defensive about the North Ship poems, that they, they are somehow invulnerable, and that one of the powerful aspects of of Larkin's work and the reasons that it became so popular was because in defiance of kind of modernist ideas about irony and the distance of the poet from the reader, that Larkin was emboldened by Hardy to figure himself as pretty much an, an average person. There's lots of ways in which Larkin wasn't at all average. Um, or Hardy. <laughs> or Hardy as well. Um, it, that That's certainly true. But that the persona that he developed a bit of an Eeyore persona, but also someone capable of being moved and being hurt and and being moved by the sight of young lambs being born. Uh, that's not the kind of thing which the poet of the North Ship could have created a poem out of. So there's a kind of ways in which his work connects to what could be called a sentimental tradition um, in poetry. Something A. Hausman is possibly also an influence uh, on this, but that Larkin felt that why not... Uh, expose his own emotions in the poems or create a simulacrum of the um, exposure of emotions that might move the reader in the way in which a Hardy or Hausman poem moves the reader. Thanks for listening to this extract from series one of Modernish Poets. To listen to the full series and to all our other close reading series, sign up at lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link below. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.